Hey everybody, welcome to a bonus episode of Beyond the Breakers. So if you are listening to this episode right now, thank you for your support on Patreon. We're happy to uh, to bring you some extra content here for the month of November. So Taylor, how's it going today? Pretty good. Uh, the you know day after Thanksgiving, there's a ton of college basketball and college football on TV, so it'll be uh, be a good day. Yeah, a fun day to to sit on the couch. Yes, um, or podcast. Or podcast. Sit in sit in your podcasting chair. <laughs> I, I'm literally sitting on the floor as we do this one. I had to broadcast from an alternative location in the house today. It does sound pretty good, at least on my <laughs> end. So whatever you're doing, you have to keep doing it. So yeah, we're uh, got a bonus episode today, so we'll we'll branch out a little bit today. Yet again, we'll be we'll be really stretching the limits of the purview of our show beyond the breakers uh, which is ostensibly about shipwrecks loss and lessons learned from maritime disasters our story we'll talk about today doesn't necessarily involve any shipwrecks lessons learned i would say yes on any any historical scale we have learned some lessons right Uh, disasters at sea maritime disasters mm, on a technological physical level probably not Maybe, a, maybe more of a life lived as a disaster on a on a societal level maybe yeah we could say we could say yes we're talking about a disaster related to maritime things so we'll we'll right. get to that in just a little bit first i actually do just want to talk a little bit about that steamboats discussion that was put on last week by the uh the maritime museum of british columbia we had shared that access code uh with our listeners um all of our all of our patrons had access to that if you wanted that, um, and the time worked out. I know that was a that was a big thing for some people, especially if you're listening to us from, say, the UK, uh, somewhere that's on a very different time than we are here, or than than British Columbia is. That was an issue, so we are currently still waiting on the uh, the recording of that. See if we can get access to that. Waiting to hear back on that email. Um, in the meantime, I did share the, I just took pictures on my phone of the slides while while it was going on. So I shared those on Patreon and I added a few captions just based on the notes that I was taking for each of those. So not ideal, but hopefully a little bit more informative than nothing. Right. Um, until we can hopefully, hopefully get the full recording uh, and, and share that with everyone uh, or share that with our patrons. Uh, so anyway, uh, a bit more about that talk. If you weren't reading through the stuff that we were sharing, you know, most of last week, that was given by John McFarlane. The talk was called When Rivers Were Roads, Paddle Steamers of Western North America. Uh, John McFarlane is an author, and he's the actually the former director of the Maritime Museum of British Columbia that put on the program. His most recent book, uh, which is kind of, it, that program kind of worked somewhat as a book launch for his newest book, uh, right. Paddle Steamers of Western North America. Uh, which I'm I'm looking to get a copy of right now. The most accessible way is Amazon. I'll wait a little bit, maybe. I don't want to pay full price from Amazon necessarily if I can get it somewhere else. Um, right. I did, however, get a copy of one of his other books. He has he has several books out. Uh, I got a copy of Around the World in a Dugout Canoe. Does he is he the one doing the sailing or is he documenting? He's not. He is he is documenting the story of someone who did this, the story of John Voss. Uh so the the goal of this person's journey, I think it was in like 1901. I think it was early 20th century. Uh he wanted to claim the record of smallest vessel to ever circumnavigate the globe. 
So I really don't know much about the story yet. I haven't cracked into the book. It's a beautiful book. Katie and I were both commenting on it. We're both big readers. And just, just physically, like aesthetically, it's a, it's a absolutely beautiful hardcover book. Uh, Interesting. Compared to, to some others. A small press, but it's, it's a very, very nice looking book. So anyway, that's John McFarlane. Some points of interest from the talk that I just wanted to highlight here and discuss a little bit. He talked about mainly stern wheelers and side wheelers, but I was fascinated to learn that center wheelers had existed. Yeah, I saw that in your notes, and I had definitely never uh, never heard of that before. He describes it in his presentation as a rare design, only one or two instances of this in Western North America. I guess uh, that he, explains he why I didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, he didn't have any pictures of, of them. I figured if he didn't have any, I don't know where they would be. I've looked online. I could not find any pictures or visual depictions of what this would have looked like. I have no idea if the wheel's just sticking up through the middle of the boat. I don't know. Seems like a bad idea. Yeah, it really does. But anyway, that was fascinating. Uh, so he mentions, you know, most paddle wheelers were steam powered, but later versions used gasoline, diesel, and even electric power. So nowadays there, there are still some paddle wheelers in operation and they use slightly more modern forms of propulsion. Yeah, I know in um, Cincinnati, you can ride one of these over from like the Kentucky side of the river to the Cincinnati side, like for like Reds games and things like that. So it's kind of cool. Seems like a bit of overkill to cross the river that you can <laughs> take the bridge across. I think foot. it's more of an experience thing. <laughs> Something that was fascinating that I may, may have come up in, in some of my research earlier, but he mentions how for at least most of their existence, most sternwheelers couldn't effectively go into reverse. Interesting. Because if the wheel starts turning backwards, it starts dumping all of that water from the river into the back of the boat. <laughs> so going in reverse was a bad idea. And I, I couldn't quite tell I from his description. I don't know if quite literally that they were designed that they could not go in reverse or just that it was a bad idea to do so. Right. You'd think that if this is something that's going to sink your ship, you just wouldn't be able to, it just wouldn't have that feature. But, you know, <laughs> it was a different time. Uh, he did mention, however, that for some of these protective screens were added so that, so that, yes, you could do this because it would block the water from, from flooding those rear compartments. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so basically, instead of going in reverse, a savvy captain would get where he needed to be and just let the river sort of drift him into place or her i don't know i'm assuming there were some female riverboat captains too but yeah so instead of actually throwing it into reverse just getting where you need to go and drifting back into place and steering it the way it needs to be steered you just gave me a great idea for like i don't know some sort of like historical tv show or novel like documenting like what it would be like to be a woman steamboat captain in like the 1880s that. or something i can see that being a thing it'd be like mark twain but for women and yeah more modern. Mm -hmm. Shattering the glass boiler. <laughs> I did not realize how often steamboats, and I'm assuming other types of boats too, were prefabricated overseas and then just shipped and built on site wherever they needed to go. I did not realize that either. Because, I, I mean, it makes sense. I guess presumably it's easier to just build something, take it apart, ship it more directly where it needs to go than having to build the ship and sail it, you know, around south america and up the west coast it, yeah particularly if you're building like steamboats that aren't really like paddle wheelers that aren't necessarily uh ocean going vessels you know it was fascinating you know how it, it's kind of like a 
kind of like a Lego set. They would build it, make sure all the pieces fit, and then take it apart and in the process mark each piece, you know, very clearly <laughs> as this piece goes here, this piece goes here, so that when you get it on the other side, you can put it back together and you you ideally have the same thing. That was cool. I had no idea. There's a slide. It shows the steamer Northland call. Uh-huh. You can see this on, on Patreon. It's It looks fully assembled. It looks like a fully functional uh, ship. But then on the on the little dock, you can see people carrying in the boiler to install it, uh-huh. which is, again, fascinating that all these pieces are coming from different areas and then put together to make the functioning steamboat. And the boiler's way bigger than I thought it was. How big I is kind it? Of, I kind of pictured like a little, not little, but like a just a medium-sized can, basically. Because, uh-huh. you know, thinking they've got multiple boilers, I was thinking that these were relatively small things. But this boiler's huge. It's like bigger than a person. I did not know how big this thing was. Yeah, I guess I didn't really have a concept either. I hadn't really thought about it. So thinking of thinking of the idea that they can be that big, it makes the idea of a boiler explosion that much scarier. Thinking of right. one of these things rocketing up through the planks of, of your ship when it's it's not this small little thing. It's like it's the size of a boulder and it's hot and it's spewing steam. It's crazy how big this thing was. Uh, some particular, some some specific ships that he mentions that were of interest. Uh, there was one he talked about called the Minto. Mm-hmm. It had done just kind of, you know, short runs up and down. I believe it was the Columbia River. Uh, what was most interesting was the, was the end of its life. Uh, so once once its little area, kind of south of Revelstoke, actually on the Columbia, uh, uh-huh. that area that there was a dam put in and it created what's now called the Arrow Lakes. Uh-huh. And because it wasn't really going to be useful anymore, it was intentionally sunk. It's kind of drove it out to the middle of the river and intentionally sank it. Mm-hmm. They set it on fire. And then, like, it wouldn't sink because it had been built too sturdily. <laughs> and this thing just basically burns, I guess, to the waterline. But it doesn't actually sink, and they need to get this thing out of the way. So they end up having to ram it multiple times with, like, tugboats, I guess, before this thing finally accepts its fate and, and sinks under the water. I just thought it was amazing, the, the durability of some of these things. Right. And even... Even, you know, being intentionally burned, it still needs a lot of extra effort to to sink. You know, showing that these things are really tough as long as their boiler doesn't explode. Right. Uh, What else do we have here? Um, Oh, the other thing I wanted to point out about the Minto is that now, sort of in retrospect, people are like, oh, like, there's interest in this. We want to find this so we can see what it's like, so we can see what the steamboat was like. And they've been unable to find it. Really? Which I I think is really fascinating, and it really goes a long way to explain other situations where where people are looking for a sunken ship, whether that's the ocean or the Great Lakes or anywhere. It really highlights how hard it is to find these things. Something that seems like it should be easy to find, even, you know, a, a massive freighter or cruise liner that we just can't find. And this, you know, this isn't a massive ship we're talking about, but this is a pretty small area. And we know basically exactly where it sank and they still can't find it. Yeah, that puts into perspective, like you said, like the searching, but also things like that Malaysian flight uh, 370. Like mm -hmm. good luck. You don't know where even where to look. Yeah, you think of some of the spaces involved looking for something in the Pacific Ocean or, or the Atlantic. And when you look at a relatively small search area like this on a river 
it really highlights how hard that is to find something that's underwater. And it makes it all the more incredible when, when people are able to find something. Like in our story about the Central America, all the math that had to go into those probability calculations and saying, yeah, it, it truly is amazing that they were able to locate this thing. Uh, other ships of note, one of them was the Yosemite. You know, we've talked about boiler explosions with steamboats. Uh-huh. Yosemite's boiler exploded in 1865. According to McFarland here, quote, apparently the skippers like to make these vessels go very, very quickly, and they'd get the chief engineer to tie down the safety valves so that they would get extra speed well beyond the safety limits. <laughs> so good. Yeah, really. It's interesting because we've covered several steamboats where the boilers exploded. Right. Uh, the, the Sultana, we talked about the the Slocum, all of those things where we have we have these boilers the Slocum had a boiler explosion, right? Um, that was a fire. Oh, okay, fire. That was just a fire uh, on board. I know we have had other boiler explosions, though. The Sultana's the the big, the big one, but the Anthony Wayne must be what I'm thinking about. Yes, that one. Yes, uh, um, that did happen. Uh, so we had that. So this, we've seen boilers exploding because they're overworked. You know, either the vessel's being pushed too fast, uh, or it's just carrying too much, like we saw with the Sultana. And this this instance, you know, of of these chief engineers tying down these these safety valves, it raises an interesting question. You know, we talk a lot about safety measures on the show and and what safety measures are implemented after a specific accident. And a lot of times we we, we don't see similar problems after one of these changes is implemented. Right. But how do we account for situations where safety protocols have been implemented, but these protocols aren't just ignored or overlooked, but they're actively subverted. They're actively worked around by the people they're designed to protect. What What do you do right. about that? I mean, I think that's a good question. It's something I work with in my job, working in the transportation industry in an operations capacity. You can have all the safety plans you want, but if you don't have a culture of safety, you don't have a plan. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. And I think that's that's the biggest thing is getting people to buy in that this is how it's done. A good example of that is we talked about – we always talk about bridge resource management or crew resource management. And that would be like the airline industry. Like, cabin or crew resource management is like the – it's the industry standard. It's expected. Mm-hmm. So, you could have all the plans you want, but if people aren't going to implement them like that, it doesn't matter. You, you have to have mm-hmm. people buy in. Yeah. On a smaller scale, from my experience, what I could compare this to is, you know, something that a situation that is dangerous if you do it the wrong way. But if you're following all the precautions, there's no inherent danger to it. Something that I would compare it to from my experience with grocery store working, uh, having to train employees on using the baler, uh, (laughs) the cardboard baler, which sounds like a kind of prosaic, I don't know, boring thing. But if you don't know what you're doing, like it's an extremely dangerous machine. And there's safety measures in place to make it very, very safe to use. I remember one time I was training someone. This is probably the only time I've ever almost yelled at someone or really gotten short with someone at work uh, in, in any capacity. And it was this this younger person I was training. And there was a piece of cardboard that was that was jammed in the in the bottom of the baler. And he reaches in to grab it. And I, I had to tell him very firmly, no, like we're going to shut this down or we're, we're going to open up the, the door and get it out that way. Never for any reason, ever, 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 should you be putting your head inside the baler or your right. whole arm inside the baler. Absolutely not. Sure, it saves time, but 
the safest way to not get crushed to death by the Baylor is to not ever be inside the Baylor. <laughs> so anyway, a very, a very different situation, but still, it's like those safety measures are in place for a reason. Right. And only bad things can happen if you're, if you're going around them. Right. Nothing positive comes from that. Uh, another one of note uh, is the, the steamboat Orizaba. And Orizaba was interesting to me because she was on that San Francisco to Panama run that we talked about in the Central America episode. Okay. So taking taking people from, you know, who had maybe been in the gold fields in California, taking them from San Francisco down to Panama, you know, with, where they would take that trip across the isthmus and then take another ship to, say, New York or wherever they needed to go. Uh, so we, we saw the Central America on the Panama to New York side of that. This was interesting to see a little bit more about that California to Panama run. Mm -hmm. Another thing of note there, this would be especially interesting to people uh, who, who've read about or, or have an interest in South and Central America. If you're familiar with the story of a man named William Walker... Do you remember William Walker? Do you know William Walker? I am familiar with him only because of hearing about him on a podcast. Yeah, that's where I heard about him first on uh, on Behind the Bastards. Actually, yeah, um, it was a good. I think it was a two or three part series about him. That whole private army filibuster. Yeah, yeah thing that's, that's how going, I know him. Going on in the mid eighteen hundreds, and Orizaba was actually one of the ships involved, just because of the route it ran. Uh, in taking people from California to places like Panama and Nicaragua, where they ended up getting usually in quite a bit of trouble and some, <laughs> sometimes executed. So, yeah, she uh, she had a part to play in that. Orizaba actually, I believe, at one point came under fire from the Nicaraguan Navy because they, <laughs> they knew exactly who she was carrying and what she was doing. Right. Fun little detail there. Overall, it was a really enjoyable talk. I'm glad I got to see it. I, I hope that we can we can get it uh, so that you know all of our listeners, all of our patrons can take part in that and listen to it. Also, very well presented, very informative, uh, and I'm looking forward to getting a copy of uh, of McFarland's book uh, to yeah. add to my my rapidly growing maritime bookshelf. <laughs> I think that is a cool talk, though. Um, it's cool. It's such a unique period of time, paddle wheel, you know, steamers and stuff. Like we don't have anything like that today. Really, other than just like the excursion boats and stuff. Yeah, we we've touched on that before about you know these these boats having character and having a reputation right. and a story and people know these boats and when they come into a port, you know people come to the to the docks to see this boat even if they're not necessarily taking a trip on it they just want to see it. And I think there's a little bit of that kind of Americana nostalgia probably attached to it. I mean, although I'm very aware these vessels were other places, even outside of North America and in the United States, it's so heavily tied to like Mark Twain. And, and all of that, that it, you know, kind of evokes a little bit of American history. Yeah, for sure. So actually, it it ties in, interestingly, to, to the main topic I wanted to discuss today in our bonus episode. You know, we just spent 20-ish minutes talking about steamboats. And we are actually going to dial back the clock a little bit in terms of technology. But stay on the river. We will stay on the river. Uh, we, we will stay on the waterways, but we're going to go back a little bit in time, and then we'll sort of end up where we started uh, by the end of things. Uh, so the main thrust of today's episode, uh, we're going to talk about flatboats, keelboats, and a legendary American folk figure in Mike Fink. Uh, so before we go in to this to this topic, do you 
Are you familiar with Mike Fink? Do you know Mike Fink's stories? Um, I it's like a name I would tell you that I know, but I don't really know anything about it. Like it would be like maybe like that he was like some sort of legend or some sort of like uh, frontiersman or something. But beyond that, like I don't know any details, and mm-hmm. I'm here to learn yeah. just like the audience. <laughs> it's interesting because like I. I mean, I, I enjoy, like, folk tales and stuff like that. I, I probably read more of them than the average American. I don't know. They interest me. I, I love hearing new stories, you know, whether they're frontier stories or ghost stories or just monster stories, whatever it may be. Pieces of folklore are just really fascinating. Tall tales. I love tall tales. And whenever I mention Mike Fink, I feel like no one ever recognizes the name or, or knows who he is. Uh, it's, it's very rare. I, don't, I can't even think of a person I've mentioned him to who knows who he is. <laughs> Right. See, he's always stuck with me for some reason. So in addition to to the other, the other, those types of stories that you hear, you know, the uh, Paul Bunyan and like Pecos Bill, John Henry, even the more, the more concrete historical figures of like Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. Mm -hmm. And hearing all those stories as a kid, I particularly remember, you know, reading them in the library in like picture books, I think was my, my first introduction to these or even having them read to me, uh, you know, as a, as a, when you'd have like story time in school, I remember going to story time in, I think it was second grade. Cause I think it, I remember the, the library at, uh, at our school in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I remember the librarian reading us a story about Mike Fink. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know why it stuck with me so much this character, but I I remember the librarian did such a great job of acting out the parts where they have these really long winded boasts. Like that's a huge part of these sort of duels that they have on the river boats. uh, These, these fights they get into. Is this like an 1800s like rap battle on the river? uh, It's, I mean, essentially that's exactly what it is. (laughs) And I, I just loved the, I loved the structure of them and the flow of these things. And just all of these, these increasingly, crazy insane boasts that they're making it's like eight mile but 1800s eight mile that's a great way to describe it and uh what i thought was interesting in some of the some of the reading that i had done in preparation for this was the role that this plays in a lot of these stories and the way that in many ways it does take the place of an actual physical confrontation Mm -hmm. you know on on the surface that's what it's leading to but in many of these cases, the the only goal is the exchange of boasts. It's kind of like something out of like a Viking saga, right? Or, or I think or like like, du- like dueling, like it very, so very rarely ends up on the dueling ground. Like it's mostly yeah. just like issuing the challenges and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like that that is the that is the competition is who can sort of make the other one back down when really neither of them wants to fight in the first place, right? One of those depictions is from Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi. You know, you have these two boatmen who exchange boasts, but, you know, one of them ends up backing down and the other one is super, super relieved that he did because he didn't want to fight either. And they end up becoming friends as they continue on their on their journey down the river. So anyway, we'll, we'll come back specifically to Mike Fink after we talk about the kind of the technology of, of these boats that we're dealing with here. Uh, so as I mentioned, we're focused on keelboats and flatboats. These kind of boats are pretty synonymous with the American push westward on the frontier. Recently settled areas, the very early days of the country. 
the locations are interesting for some of these stories because I think when we think of the frontier for Americans, uh-huh. you know, we think a lot about, you know, we obviously think about people like Lewis and Clark pushing the frontier west. You Oregon know, Trail. Oregon Trail. We, we think about, you know, cities like St. Louis sort of as like the jumping off point right. into the the real west. Uh, once you're past that, you know, you're out of, of civilization per se. I would say that's Jeff definitely the general like thought, but mm-hmm. living in some of the places we've lived, I think we've been more exposed right. to and the idea of the Eastern frontier. We talked about it on the Anthony Wayne episode about how we had, you know, these steamboats being built in 18, the eight, mid 1830s. This is only a couple of decades after when this was Indian territory. This wasn't even the frontier. This, this was, this was not at all. Uh, somewhere that that Americans were welcome or comfortable. Yeah, and I think you know, like you know, we living in Pittsburgh at one point. I think that you know, if you study the history of that area, that becomes eye opening as to like how early there's English and European settlement going on there, and how that's the mm-hmm. frontier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very for interesting. sure. And uh, yeah, what's fascinating about a lot of these flatboat and keelboat stories is the rivers that they happen on, rivers that we don't necessarily associate. I think in general consciousness with the frontier, uh, you know, we, we think about places like the Mississippi, the Missouri out West, right. the, the, the Columbia, but a lot of these happen uh, on the Ohio river, you know, starting to get out, out West, the Allegheny, you know, a river that I'd say if um, most Americans kind of even identify the Allegheny river where it is, it's really far East, you know, it's, it's in the Pittsburgh area. A lot of these even happen on the James river. Really? The, yeah, the, so Virginia. That's crazy. Yeah. The James River em- empties into Chesapeake Bay, you know, the, the Atlantic Ocean. So it's interesting that we have these frontier tales from so far east in, in the early history of these things. Uh, so to start out, we'll talk about flatboats. So flatboats, as the name might suggest, these are flat-bottomed boats. Uh, they're flat-bottomed so they can navigate the shallowest water possible. You can literally take it right up to the right up to the shore. Right, it's, it's just a flat piece of wood, basically. Yeah, I mean, that it's, definitely comes in handy on the river, where it's changing constantly, you know? Like, there's not always the same, um, you know, profile of the river. You've always got bars forming and, and things like mm-hmm. that. These are, uh, in my opinion, like, quite literally as simple as boat design gets. I've, I've never seen a simpler watercraft than these, aside from, like, floaties that you would wear in the pool. And even the technology that goes into those is probably more advanced. Um, yeah, I mean, some of these are literally, you see artist depictions of these. Some of them are are basically just a set of planks with a tent on them for some shelter for the crew. Yeah. That's crazy. There's nothing to these. They, they have like little sideboards, some of them. And, and that's, that's it basically. Uh, some of the ones I've seen do appear to have kind of like a, like a storage area underneath the deck. Some of them do have little cabin type structures, but they're very, very simple watercraft. Typically crewed by five to seven people. You know, these are these are pretty small, but you need a good number of people to, to make sure that you're one able to rotate crew in and out, and you have enough people to to keep yourself afloat and and off of the, those sandbars that you were talking about. Uh, what's interesting to me about flatboats, and again, one of the reasons that they were so simply constructed, they're typically one-use vessels. They'd be loaded up 
you know, upriver, ridden downstream with stops along the way. And then once they got to their final destination, they would just take them apart. Interesting. I don't know, probably reuse the the wood for, I don't know, another boat or something else. But they were definitely, they they were intended to be disposable. That's interesting, like in a time where things were not disposable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, the, the economy of it really is interesting because, yeah, like you said, you, you kind of have this image of frontier people really valuing the property they do have because it's not super easy to get more. So, yeah, I mean, the idea of a disposable watercraft is, is fascinating. Although, like you said, I'm sure that most of that is repurposed into mm-hmm. some sort of shelter or something to help them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... I assume it's quite possible they they just took the same wood back upstream and rebuilt the same boat. Right. Kind of a kind of a ship of Theseus situation. <laughs> um, do you have the same flat boat if it's been taken apart and put back together? <laughs> so the most fascinating part of the flat boats for me, the biggest restriction on the flat boats and other types of rafts. I mean, this this essentially is a raft. It's not even necessarily a boat, I would guess. So these were not only single use, but also single direction. <laughs> you could really only go downriver in these. Interesting. They don't have a they don't have a true hull or keel. It's just floating along with the river. Essentially, uh, they're not designed for travel upriver. Instead, they're just supposed to be guided downstream by the steersman, and again, stopping along the way. Just a very interesting mode of travel. So here's where keelboats sort of come in with an advantage. So keelboats could be taken upriver, mainly just through sheer muscle power, a lot of that being human muscle power, but also horse and ox teams on the riverbanks. You know, you could hook them up to these and they could pull you along. Right. So it's more of like a canal boat almost, or a proto-canal boat at that point? Yeah, very very similar. Kind of like a, a canal <clears throat> boat that's not operating in the sort of sanitized confines of a man-made canal right so keelboat is a, a more classic boat design it has a, a pointed nose and stern it looks like a boat you know it doesn't look like a raft like those flat boats most of these have a roofed over deck you know with a a more traditional looking cabin structure some of them even have masts for a sail for when that would have been useful these were i guess much more of what i was thinking when i started researching these river boats right uh, so the men would rotate pushing poles and pulling ropes to take the boat up a river. Really labor-intensive mode of travel. Um, and, and really uh, highlights the reason that a lot of the people manning these boats would need to be so big and strong and tough and probably mean. Right. I think it this t- line of work would probably generally attract people who have lived a little bit of a harder life, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that I think even if you hadn't had that experience, you'd probably very quickly develop right, that, right. that sort of attitude uh, working a job like this. So I'm going to quote here from the Warren Mail of Warren County in southwestern Ohio. Nice. Uh, this is from 1850. Perhaps all are not aware of the usefulness of keelboats on the Allegheny River. They form a connecting link in the line of business transactions between Pittsburgh and and this section of the country. Large quantities of flour, pork, iron, nails, liquors, and groceries are annually procured at Pittsburgh for this place and vicinity. Ridgeway in Elk County, Olean, and intermediate places along the river. 
Many articles of furniture, tools, etc. of the lumbermen are annually brought up. These can all, at most seasons of the year, be brought to Franklin by steamboat. In times of low water, however, they would be compelled to remain at Franklin or Pittsburgh, or be transported by land at much inconvenience and expense. This is all avoided by keel boats. They come whenever there's freight enough for a load. They're drawn by two or three horses, which is found to be a decided improvement on the old method of poling. They come from Pittsburgh in 10 or 12 days and return in about three. Three keelboats were up during the last six days. Interesting. Um, that's really interesting. It's interesting the role that keelboats play here that's being recognized by the people that they are servicing. You know, they, they recognize the superiority in some aspects of the keelboat over the steamboat, in that the keelboat is much more on demand. It kind of does what it needs to do when it needs to do it, whereas the steamboat really is confined by the water conditions. On a personal note, it's interesting hearing that, just living so close to where this is being written about, um, mm -hmm. having been to like Franklin and places like that. It's so weird now to see a, a river running by it with, you know, there's nothing to indicate there would have ever been any trade. But mm -hmm. at the time, like, it was a vital lifeline to Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. It's just really yeah, interesting exactly. how if you don't know the history of somewhere, you could completely miss that. And it's interesting also when that was written. That was written in 1850. So by this point, steamboats are already a very well-established. Right. Like, do dominant form of, of transportation and trade on any major river. That's going to be the, the standard way of, you know, large quantity transport. But, but still, there's these other advantages that are being seen in this older technology. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's also interesting how Pittsburgh is thought of as like the economic hub for this entire area, mm -hmm. just due to the rivers. Yeah, exactly. It's like it really was a, a lifeline, like you said. And it also, it really makes sense going back to our episode on the city of Everett about how you know they, they wanted to establish the Pittsburgh of the West. Right, uh, yeah, how, that makes a lot more sense. And how that, that kind of sterling reputation of Pittsburgh as a, as a commercial and industrial success, you know, even, even up until that point, really lived on. And I, I think that you know, by now that's kind of died out and most people don't think of Pittsburgh that way as, as you know, the nation expanded West and, and Pittsburgh kind of got left behind in some aspects, especially after the end of steel production. Right. But, um, but yeah, I, I, it's interesting to look back and see what reputations different places had uh, compared to now. Uh, so this brings us to kind of our, our, our main character, the ultimate goal I wanted to talk about today, Mike Fink, a classic American folktale. Again, not as famous as some of his compatriots in that group of stories, but Still interesting, a lot, I think, to be read and to be found in his stories that are very indicative of society, of, of American society in the past. Right. Uh, so the keelboat obviously is permanently connected to this semi-mythical character, Mike Fink. Most of the sources you, you, you read, you know, any sort of scholarly or academic source will indicate that he is semi-mythical, kind of in that legendary echelon of people. Kind of, kind of like a John Henry type figure. Yeah, like I, I would say more more historically evident than John Henry. Like we we know that this person existed, right? We know we know that he did the job that the stories have him doing. We have a rough estimate of his life in terms of dates. 
Beyond that, none of it is really established in fact. Any story you hear about Mike Fink is probably an invention of a writer telling a story. Right. Most of the sources are going to be literary rather than actually historical. So the accepted timeline is that he was born somewhere around 1770 in the area of what would have been the very recently established city of Pittsburgh, which had previously been Fort Pitt. Before that, it had been the French Fort Duquesne when it was first constructed uh, right at the right at the forks of the Ohio River. So for those who, who haven't you know, seen Pittsburgh on a map, um, if you, you see you know, an aerial view of Pittsburgh, you can immediately see why Pittsburgh would have been such a strategic strong point, why you know, world empires would have been coming to blows over this location. It's you know, right at the forks of the Ohio with the Allegheny and the Monongahela River, a really, really great place to stop up river traffic if you want to and send your own river commerce up and down if you want to. Right. So he uh, he served as a scout, apparently, during the Indian Wars on the frontier. Uh, so late 1700s, early 1800s we're looking at here. Uh, so he's serving as a scout. This is rough country. This is a rough job to be doing. Very dangerous, at times probably brutal job. Both of things that he was probably having to do and also trying to avoid having done to him. Right. Not the kind of job that you would do if you were... Uh, weak-spirited, I would say. <laughs> uh, so at some point later, he takes up work on these rivers. Uh, I'll be quoting from Michael Allen quite a bit here. Uh, he puts that around 1790 when he started his river work. Accounts pretty much agree that he was a physically imposing guy. A lot of accounts put him at over six feet and around 200 pounds. So, you know, not a not a massive guy, not a giant, by especially by our modern standards. But definitely a, a, a solidly built guy, a, a big dude. Um, I'm sure big... also, like, living that rough lifestyle, like, you've kind of got that, like, almost frontier of, like, farmer strength. Like, you're just yeah. a strong fellow. Yeah, for sure. It's probably not the modern conception of someone who's, like, super cut and built, but, like, probably a tough dude. Probably really right. strong. Right. So, yeah, not not a guy you're going to aggravate unless you... Absolutely know what you're doing. Uh, so the stories around Fink, they, they kind of came to represent this ideal, or we could even say a stereotype, of this riverboat man, which, like we've established, was such an important element in this late 18th, early 19th century society. The riverboats were everything to some of these communities a little bit further into the frontier. That was the only way that they survived. So obviously the people that are taking this stuff to them, they need to be pretty tough themselves to make sure that they get through this pretty wild country. Uh, so quoting from Michael Allen's article, Sired by a Hurricane, uh, from 1985. In the eyes of 19th century Americans, flatboatmen, keelboatmen, and <laughs> it's supposed to say lumber raftsmen. It says luber raftsmen. Uh, lumber raftsmen enjoyed a status and prestige comparable to that of today's truck drivers, loggers, railroad men, and rodeo cowboys. To frontier squatters and eastern shopkeepers alike, they were folk heroes in every sense of the word. Their lifestyle easily lent itself to romanticization, and Americans conjured up images of a brawny, red-shirted, sun-browned, rough-and-ready race of super-frontiersmen plying the mighty Mississippi. Relying heavily on local color and slang... 
Newspaper humorists depicted the Western boatman as, quote, half horse, half alligator, a folk term commonly used to describe the wild and woolly frontiersmen of the Trans-Appalachian West. So I'll go back here where he he mentions the status and prestige comparable to things like truck drivers, loggers, railroad men. I feel like he's he's probably using the word prestige differently than we probably commonly use it. Right. I, we... I, I think there are there there are certain things that we associate with those trades in in our modern society. You know, the, this this was only written in in the eighties, so not too long ago, but but quite a bit before I was born. Um, even though they're not necessarily the most prestigious, you know, envied jobs, we we do have certain ideas about what kind of people do those jobs. Right. You know, obviously not not everyone wants to be a truck driver. That's that's pretty well attested with driver shortages. Mm, yes, it is. But there's there's definitely a certain skill set that we associate with truck drivers. You know, we kind of have this image of like kind of a kind of a tough guy trucker or, or it's a certain lifestyle, you know, relatively independent, isolated, spending a lot of time by yourself. So right. you, you kind of do have to be able to sort of take care of things on your own. Right. Yeah. Um, like when you're out on the road, like you're kind of the, the king of the castle and you've got to figure it out. There's no one to no one to really assist you. Yeah, that's I think that's probably the best way to describe it is, you know, rather than rather than any sort of like physical depiction, it's it's much more of a mental concept of being a problem solver and being able to get through stuff more or less on your own, obviously with a support system, but things are going to come up that you have to deal with. So of these boatmen, Mike Fink, by far the best known, developing a reputation for abrasiveness to other frontiersmen, the law and civilization as a whole. Some little examples we have of this. Uh, at one point, he was apparently taken to court near St. Louis for a $16 debt, which he, of course, refused to pay. Uh, and he had some land seized by the sheriff. I don't know how that story ended. Seems like Mike Fink wouldn't just let that happen. Also in St. Louis, he was put on trial and ultimately fined for shooting off the heel of a black man's foot. Uh-oh. Um, also... As a reader warning to anyone who's going to track down some of these stories, uh, black man is not the term that is used <laughs> in the original story. Uh -huh. uh, a lot of rough language, especially from a race perspective in a lot of these early stories. Kind of obviously mellows over time. But yeah, some of these early stories from the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, yeah, a lot of racial slurs being used. <laughs> Again, not surprising, but it is a part of it that you... Uh, will be jarring, I guess, if that's not what you go in expecting. Uh, so ultimately, Fink moved further west, uh, as far west as the upper Missouri, uh, on the fur-trapping frontier. He joined an expedition under William Ashley and Andrew Henry to ascend the upper Missouri to Fort William Henry at the confluence with the Yellowstone. Uh, so this is interesting, the record of this expedition. He was employed by this trapping company. So this is actually something that there is historical documentation of, the right. fact that this person worked for this company. Um, so according to Allen, there he hunted, trapped, drank, and apparently made a general nuisance of himself. Soon, <laughs> Mike had a falling out with a man named Carpenter and left Fort Henry to reside in a nearby cave, returning occasionally to the fort to, to demand whiskey. Fueled by alcohol, his feud with Carpenter one day erupted into violence. According to Rocky Mountain Fur Company records, the only solid documentation of Mike's death, in 1823, Mike Fink shot Carpenter. Talbot soon after shot Fink, and not long after was drowned at the Tetons. 
<laughs> so in that one little blurb. There's, there's a lot happening there. There's a lot. This is a whole movie condensed down to one little blurb. Right. So we have Mike Fink, for whatever reason, shooting this guy Carpenter. We can assume that Mike was probably heavily under the influence of this whiskey at the it's time. It's probably the whiskey and the living in the cave thing. Yeah. Um, so he shoots this guy. And what happens next? Obviously, we have this revenge killing of one of Carpenter's friends shooting Fink. Really highlights the rough and tumble nature of life out on the frontier. Yes, you can start whatever you want, but someone else might come in to help finish it. And then not long after, the guy who shoots Mike Fink is drowned at the Tetons. So not only is there the human danger of living in this, what we could call a society, we live in a society, <laughs> and uh, there's still the the natural violence of the landscape itself. Right. People are still drowning or dying in rock slides or being killed by bears and things like that. It's dangerous any anywhere you look out in this territory. Uh, so again, there's very little actual historical record of Fink's existence. It is clear that he did exist. Like we said, there's that company record of him being killed by a co-worker. I believe he was a co-worker. Probably some paperwork to fill out for that, I would assume. I would imagine. Maybe not at the time, but now there would be, for sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it's obvious he existed... He may have been a particularly rough and violent member of this, you know, this group of people. But most of the stories associated with him developed after his death. You know, this is pretty typical of these types of people. These, right. You know, tall tale, legendary figures. They may be relatively well known during their lifetime, but they, you know, explode in notoriety after after their death. The first published story was in 1828. This is from Morgan Neville. It's called The Last of the Boatmen. Uh, it's available online. We'll share the PDF online. It's like 14 pages long. These Mike Fink stories really proliferated between 1828 and 1860. I think it's very interesting, that window there. What was that so window again? Uh, 1828 to 1860. It's okay. kind of the heyday of the written stories about Mike Fink. So we can kind of see, getting up into the, the era of the Civil War, maybe... You know, public interest in this is sort of wrenched elsewhere and then kind of doesn't really come back. You know, that's old timey stuff. You know, keelboats, flatboats, those those have been out of style for a little bit now. Steamboats are the thing. It's not new. It's not interesting. We have a we have a civil war to focus on. So these stories revolved around Mike's rough tricks and practical jokes, his marksmanship and his drinking and fighting. So again, we can see why this one maybe didn't make the cut when Disney was looking through American <laughs> folktales to bring right. back. Most of the things that he is famous for are, are not things that you want your children doing. You know, fighting, drinking, and shooting guns. It's not something you can easily put on screen for children. Practical jokes play a big role in his stories. Uh, ben Cassidy, in his History of Louisville, he provides the most famous of these practical jokes. So Fink had been summoned to appear in court in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know what for. I wasn't able to find that. <laughs> Who knows, right? Anything? I I'm sure it's available. I just didn't read the actual story. I'm, I'm reading this in that Michael Allen article. So Fink responds that he would not under any circumstances leave his boat. I'm assuming that, you know, whatever justice of the peace or police officer, whatever, probably was a little bit insistent, like, no, you have to do this or you're going to get arrested and thrown in jail. So Mike says, okay, I'll go, uh, I'll go to court. 
So rather than getting off his boat, which again, he said he would under no circumstances do, instead, Mike and his crew, they load the keelboat onto a wagon. I'm assuming like <laughs> multiple wagons, probably. Right. And he orders his crew to pull it up Third Street to the courthouse because he, quote, <laughs> felt at home nowhere but in his boat and among his men. Interesting. I, I want okay. that story to be true. That's almost like paying a fine with pennies or something. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, it's, so it's petty. That, it's so much more effort just to be petty than it would be if you just did the thing that the person wanted you to do. But yeah, obviously that, that sort of encapsulates the ideas of Mike Fink as a sort of anti-establishment, anti-society character. We talked about the frontier being pushed further and further west. So figures like this become very important because they represent that sort of cutting edge of the frontier. Once it's no longer the frontier, they no longer feel comfortable. They want to move further west. And this kind of has that as him kind of thumbing his nose at the idea of of a courtroom. You know, me, I'm Mike Fink. I'm king of the keelboat men. You know, what, what makes you think that I'm just going to, like, walk into your courtroom, into your territory? So instead, he brings his territory with him. Uh, so <laughs> the story is also interesting because of the characterization. It reveals maybe not a, a crack in the tough guy facade, but definitely a nuance. You know, this this isn't just someone who blindly hates everyone. He has some affinity and camaraderie with those people he works with. You know, he he mentions he feels at home in his boat among his men. Those are the people that he, you know, really accepts that can be in his circle. Right. And, you know, apparently he, he has some affinity, some, some level of, we, we could call it affection for them. He might not use that word, but we can. Yeah. Um, and it, it is kind of cool that you can see that it's almost like you kind of, it kind of has to be earned. It's not like something that he just gives. Like if you mm-hmm. can kind of prove your worth to him, you know, you can yeah. be like hang with him, then he'll respect you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so also from Cassidy, the same author who has that history of Louisville, with the the courtroom story. One day, Mike saw a flock of sheep. Herd of sheep? Flock? Sure. Either flock. one. I don't know. I think flock sounds right, but I feel like don't we, we usually use that for birds. I, I think don't know. flock of sheep is the proper term. A group of sheep. Uh, wanted to acquire... He, he saw these sheep. He says, hmm, mutton sounds good. Oh, no. Uh, for, for me and the men. So again, this is a show of him seeing something and... Obviously, he wants it, too, but the indication in the story is that he says, oh, this would be a good you know, reward for my men. I think it's so. almost kind of that pirate quality of, like, yeah. we can only rely on each other, and even though we're doing, you know, we're living a hard life or whatever, like, we all have to still have each other's backs at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, you, you, could see, you could see that, like, pirate aspect or, like, a, a warlord-type thing where these people gain followers because they take care of their followers. You know, it might be, there might also be rough and brutal aspects to them, but if you can get in with this person and prove your worth to them, they will take care of you. Right. So yeah, that's what we see here. Uh, So despite what he's about to do from a crew perspective, you could see how this was a good move. Uh, So he sees these sheep that he wants to acquire. Uh, (laughs) Obviously he does not want to pay for them. Right. Uh, so Fink goes to tell the farmer that uh, that his sheep must be sick with something called the Black Moraine uh, and will have to be shot and disposed of immediately. Now, Fink was not just a, you know, careful-eyed noticer of this. Right. Uh, prior to this, 
uh, he has taken, uh, in the story it calls it scotch snuff, you know, just snuff tobacco. And he has shoved it up all of the sheep's noses <laughs> so that the sheep can't breathe. They're wheezing and sneezing and coughing and all kinds of stuff. And obviously they don't look the way that sheep should. So Fink goes to get the farmer. He says, hey, come look, your sheep, your sheep are in bad shape, man. I think it's the black moraine. I don't know if that's a real disease or if that's something made up for right. the story. It sounds bad. But um, so he tells the farmer, hey, check it out. Like these sheep are all sick, man. You got to do something about these sheep. I mean, you're going to you're going to have to shoot all these sheep. You don't want this to spread, do you? And so the farmer says, oh, yeah, like that sounds bad. Yeah, I, I need to get rid of these as fast as possible. So Mike Fink says, sure, I'll do it. So he <laughs> so he shoots the sheep. Uh, he takes the sheep because he says, you know, you got to you got to dispose of these things or it's going to spread to the rest of your animals, man. And so farmer says, oh, sure, sure, sure. And, you know, you guys have been so helpful here. Have a few bottles of this peach brandy that I have here. Perfect. Now they have drinks to go with their meal. Yeah. So not only does does Fink get away with stealing a whole flock of sheep to eat, he works it around to, to make it seem like he's doing the person a favor and he gets an extra reward in addition to that, in the form of brandy. Which, again, the last thing we want Mike Fink and his boys to have is more alcohol. And again, interesting, indicative of the time where trade is being conducted on more of a barter system. You know, he, he doesn't ask for money. He doesn't try to get money out of the guy. He just wants alcohol. Uh, so another aspect here, we talked about some of these rough qualities of, of these frontier figures. Marksmanship is another one that comes up a lot. Uh -huh. Obviously, a, a frontier skill that would be desirable. Uh, something that any classic hero is going to be able to do. In the story, The Last of the Boatmen, Fink shoots a Native American at the same moment that the Native shoots a deer. So it's just simultaneous, bang, bang. Fink claims that he killed both with one shot. So he's trying to show off how good he is at marksmanship by saying, yeah, I fired one bullet and I killed this Indian and I killed a deer. Which again, at the time would have been like, awesome, way to go, Mike Fink. Whereas now, most people would be like horrified by the story. Right, right. Even the ones who are okay with, you know, hunting a deer, killing a deer, it's like, but you still killed a person also. Right, like you committed murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you murdered a guy. So, <laughs> um, another story called The Disgraced Scalp Lock. Uh, so in this story, also involving a Native American, Mike shoots a character named Proud Joe's Sacred Ponytail from his head on a dare. Uh, and afterwards, he becomes the object of the Indians' hatred and revenge. So he shoots a guy's ponytail off because he thinks it would be funny. Yeah, he sounds like a, a jerk. Sa a sacred ponytail, no less. So, again, we come back to that story of him shooting a black man's heel. And when he does this, he... Apparently in the story, there's some sort of, like, deformity or, or something wrong with this person's heel. So Mike Fink shoots it off. And then, as we saw in that sheep story, then he demands compensation uh, for doing it, for doing this man a favor, because now he can, quote, wear a decent boot. Interesting. So again, shoots someone and then wants to be paid for it. I, I'm seeing a trend here of him, like, doing bad things he, to people and then wanting some sort to, of compensation. He likes to shoot people or shoot in the vicinity of people, if, if not actually shooting them. <laughs> um, shooting off pieces of them, things like that. Stuff you, again, stuff you don't want Disney to put on screen for your children to emulate. Uh, a final story here comes from a, a thing called, quote, shooting the cup, which is 
probably as it sounds, this is basically an American version of William Tell, where someone would put a cup on their head and have another one of these boatmen shoot it off to show how good they were. Uh, In one version of a Mike Fink story, Mike Fink somehow gets too drunk. Can't imagine how that happened. (laughs) And his aim is not quite as perfect as it usually is, and he ends up killing the guy. In some versions, this death is exactly what Fink was trying to do. And he has basically duped the other person. This is that carpenter fellow from earlier. He has basically tricked this person into accepting the dare and saying, hey, right. stand over there. And then he just, again, just straight up murders him. <laughs> there's there's nothing like tricky about this. This isn't the trick at all. This is, he just murders the guy. He shoots <laughs> him in the face. Like, haha, got you, I guess. So eventually tales come around, you know, as as the times are changing, the technology is changing. The, the stories start to start to change also. You know, Fink is no longer this sort of invincible king of the river. He's now kind of there as a as a foil, as a villain to be defeated by someone else. Uh, you know, at the hands of uh, Jack Pierce is one example. Right. Jumping quite a bit forward in history now, he, he starts to have run-ins with other folk figures. This is like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where you, you start to have all these <laughs> start, characters. Start mashing them all together. The, their stories start to tie together into one one big epic. Uh, so he has a run-in with Davy Crockett in the, the Disney uh, movie from 1956 called Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. Uh-huh. Davy Crockett in that, he starts out by having the same sort of verbal exchange with Fink, he comments on his height. He says, you're about a foot shorter than you should be, uh, and things like that. Uh, they end up, I think they do end up fighting. I haven't watched the movie yet. I'll see if I can find it, though. <laughs> they end up quarreling, and at the end of the day, turns out Mike Fink is an okay guy. Uh, Mike course. Fink is a rascal, yet in the end, he's worthy of respect and admiration. So there's that kind of... Uh, I definitely read that as Mike is a racist. Well, first. that is, I mean, That's that is obviously true. That, that sounds <laughs> that true is, from what we've read. Uh, yeah, that is absolutely true. But yeah, so it's it's interesting how he's depicted, how the depiction changes, you know, in, in that situation. Again, he's he's not even the main character there. He just kind of exists to show what the main character, Davy Crockett, can do. Presumably Davy Crockett, who has been resurrected after <laughs> the Alamo, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Mike is fighting a, a revenant. So, of course, he's not going to win. So that's that. I mean, the, the last thing to really discuss here is about sort of how, how real were these boatmen? Obviously, we talked about the legendary nature of, of Mike Fink. But obviously, all of those stories, those folktales, they typically spring from some level of fact. Uh, so an interesting thing here, most flat boatmen, keel boatmen, raftsmen, most people at this time, you know, out on the frontier were illiterate. Right. So and so they're not they're not leaving diaries. They're not writing letters to people. They're not really leaving a document of daily life from an internal perspective. You have people who are fascinated by them, who are writing about them. You know, people like Mark Twain, who obviously have a flair for writing. But you're you're still not getting that first person perspective in, in any real sense. Uh, so confronted with a paucity of evidence, historians nonetheless have gone ahead and written about boatmen anyway. Cassidy, the Louisville historian, he justified using these stories stories in a history to, quote, illustrate the character of the Western bargeman. So saying, maybe this story didn't happen. You know, maybe Mike Fink didn't actually drive his boat up to the courthouse by pulling it up Third Street. But the idea is accurate. 
what it represents is the important part. Right. It's kind of like, what if Hamilton was like history, right? Like it's like, a lot of it is combining multiple characters or simplifying something or adding a little bit of flair for the dramatic, mm-hmm. but the spirit of the story is still there. Exactly. And I, and I think that's something that a lot of times people get too caught up in the weeds and saying, oh, well, Hamilton is bad because it, it gets this fact wrong or, or this was this was inaccurate. And it's like, I really feel like you're missing the point. <laughs> the fact that people, you know, 12, 15, 20 year old people are even talking about Alexander Hamilton, I feel like is a a win for history. Um, yeah, I think especially- anything that can drive interest into people that want to learn about history and critically analyze history is a good thing. Right. And and that's not to say that everyone who's listening to Hamilton is, is <clears throat> going through and, and doing extra research on their own, but some people are. I read the the Chernow biography of Hamilton and yeah, me read too. more about Hamilton because of that. And, and yeah. obviously, yeah, it's 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 different and there's different facts and, and ways that the history deviates from from the popular version of it. But the fact is, like, I, I wouldn't have learned that or cared to learn about those things if not for the, the pop culture aspect of it. Um, so on that note, Richard Oglesby concludes, quote, the real boatman is not nearly so important in American history as his mythical alligator horse counterpart. It's the romanticized boatman who has captured the American imagination and become an integral part of our folklore. Therefore, a study of the literature may tell us more about the mythologizers than the mythologized. Yeah, I, I get what he's saying there. I definitely think that it's probably more of a reflection of like American frontier popular culture as a whole than rather the specific of the boatman. It's probably more what did they want the boatman to be? rather than mm-hmm. what they actually were. Yeah, it, it reflects the ideals of the society at the time, or what society would have you know, thought was cool. It's cool when a guy can uh, win a fist fight. It's cool when a guy is a sharpshooter, uh, he can shoot a, a cup off of a guy's head. It's cool when a guy can drink two bottles of whiskey and then still do all those things that I just talked about. Right. It very much does. It, it reflects the the ideals or the aspirations, I guess, of the people who are telling and, and reading these stories. Yeah, I think it's, when- it, it's a little oh, short-sighted God. to ever think that like we're the only ones that have like a reflection of our current society and popular culture. Like popular culture has always been a thing. Mm-hmm. And like you've always had those things reflected. Yeah, the only the only way it differs is, is how it's disseminated and how it's spread. You know, here you've got people reading snippets of it in a newspaper, you know, whereas now we use Twitter and Instagram to, to share popular culture. But right. it's, it's the same thing happening. You know, people, people don't change. We've said that in other contexts on the show, but pe- people don't change technology and maybe the delivery system of ideas does, but people are the same. Right. Yeah. If you look at when these stories peaked, when they were super popular, this early to mid 1800s era, this is the era, era of, you know, growing industrialism, Jacksonian democracy, this, you know, wild and crazy, rampant Americanism. Uh, and then also things like sectional discord is how Alan describes it. Um, different sectors of society starting to feel really different from each other. Uh, you know, a- after the revolution, after the war of 1812, you know, you have this sort of American sense of identity, but, but now as America expands, you, you have, you know, very different sectors of society starting to develop. And these stories were kind of a throwback to a a relatively recent past for these people, but one that was really quickly disappearing. And 
in some cases, quite literally being steamrolled by modern technology. So it makes sense that, you know, you would want to take a look back into the past uh, to an era that was still within living memory, but you knew was it's, it's in the past. It's gone. Like we're not going to get that back again. I think that's an interesting thing to see as well. You see it with like maybe people of the baby boomer generation kind of having nostalgia for the fifties and sixties, but even for millennials like ourselves, you know, all the nineties when cartoons were so much better or, you know, we, you know, we played outside or all the things you typically hear, you know, when when you're looking back at the past generation, it's interesting Mm -hmm. that that plays a role here as well. It's very easy to transplant yourself into the past and think, Oh, what would I, what would I have done? How, How would I have acted in this situation? And as you know, many people point out, you know, the, what you're doing now is probably what you would have been doing then, you know? Right. I, yeah. I would have been, you know, if I lived in frontier times, I, I probably wouldn't be out on the frontier wrestling bears <laughs> and shooting cups of people. I'd probably be sitting in an office somewhere, you know, reading a book, doing the uh, 1830s equivalent of podcasting. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's pamphlet you know? writing, probably. Yeah. Right, firing off pamphlets about stuff. <laughs> it's like, that's probably what I would have been doing. None of the cool stuff. So yeah, it's it's like you said, it, it it doesn't change. You know that that cycle always happens. We're always sort of looking back into the past at at some time that we thought was more cool or more interesting or more more important somehow than where we live now. So that's cool. I'm glad we got to talk about this. I I love talking about folk stories, folk tales, and stuff like that. I like to tie it into the maritime aspect. Obviously, we didn't talk about any real disasters in a maritime capacity, but like you said at the beginning, kind of a disaster of a man <laughs> uh, in, in a, in a sense. So there's that, that's that I think is going to wrap up our bonus episode here for today. Uh, a little bit of a long one that we did. We have another episode to get to, so we should, uh, we should get to recording that. So if you're with us to the end on this bonus episode, thank you very much. We really appreciate the support uh, on Patreon and uh, yeah, we look forward to, to hopefully getting out some more good bonus content to you in the future.